Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, Almost Repentance. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You've heard the expression that close only counts in horseshoes and grenades. And that funny little statement is intended to say that there are a lot of places in life where being close is not any different from not being close at all. I almost graduated from college or university or trade school. It really isn't any different from not graduating at all. I almost stopped myself from hitting her. I almost didn't have an accident. I almost won the lottery. I almost became famous. I mean, all those almost statements we respond, you know, close only counts in horseshoes and grenades. Well, how about almost repentance? I almost repented of my sins and I almost surrendered my life to God. I got very close. And in the case of almost repentance, I would suggest that those who almost did it are a great deal worse off than those who didn't even get close in the first place. Almost repentance hardens the heart more than never having gotten close at all. But almost repentance is really a form of false repentance. And we think of Judas, Matthew 27, 3 to 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Now, Judas could have responded like Peter and sought forgiveness. He could have genuinely humbled himself and faced the other disciples and faced Jesus and indicated that he sought to be cleansed. But full repentance and partial repentance, those are two very different things. Full repentance would have meant that Judas would have had to own his own actions and come to terms with them before others. And partial repentance, or really almost repentance, means he commits suicide. You know, in some ways, that's worse than never having repented at all. Well, we're now going to examine the second plague of Egypt with a special eye to viewing Pharaoh's interesting reaction to this plague. It's an example of almost repentance. And as we study it, I think it's important not to simply examine the interesting bits in the account. You know, we're supposed to see Pharaoh as a, you know, the kind of man that we never want to be. God's making demands of Pharaoh. He's warning Pharaoh. And some of those warnings are like arrows that are actually sinking in. They're, they're having an effect. But Pharaoh never quite gets to repentance. Indeed, remind yourself, if you're feeling convicted of your sin, say to yourself, I don't want to end up like Pharaoh. I'd rather pay the cost of repentance than pay the cost of almost repentance. So let's jump into our text, which constitutes the second of the ten plagues that come upon Egypt. Exodus 8, 1-4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And according to the last verse of Exodus chapter 7, that is verse 25, we read that seven days had passed after the Lord struck the Nile. 
And when I discussed the first plague, I had said that after seven days, the blood of the Nile would have been gone. Now, I must admit that the text doesn't actually say that, but I infer that. See, when we get to chapter 8, verse 9, when that plague is over, it says that only frogs that are left are left in the Nile. That means to me that the blood in the Nile is gone. Otherwise, at least in my way of thinking, if the fish had died, you'd expect the frogs had died as well. And so for that reason, I'm assuming that the first plague has come and gone and that Egypt is still trying to understand exactly what is it that happened there. And so at this time, as the Egyptians are thinking, you know, it's safe to drink from the Nile again. I mean, perhaps the inconvenience of having to dig wells to get water while that hardship is over, perhaps as quickly as it's begun, it's done. But this next plague, it would have been a lot more inconvenient. I mean, twice in the book of Psalms, this second plague is mentioned. Psalm 78, verse 45, it says that the frogs destroyed them. And I don't think that means that they died of the frogs, but it so unnerved them in a way that the plague in the Nile had not done. Second time it's mentioned in the Psalms is in Psalm 105, verse 30. It says, their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. That is, in the bedrooms of nobility, they just couldn't get rid of frogs. (laughs) You know, years ago, Kathy and I were in Brazil, and we found a great many geckos. Kathy had a hard time falling asleep there. She, she said she was constantly envisioning a gecko crossing her face and over her nose as she was trying to sleep. So, you know, it wouldn't have hurt her, but, but the thought of it just made her squeamish. There were just too many of those little fellows. But let's get back to this text. This time, Moses and Aaron are not to meet Pharaoh on the outside as he's going to the Nile. This time our passage says they're to go into Pharaoh, and I assume that means they're go inside his palace again. They are to demand words that are similar to before. By this time, they are to use the words, let my people go. God calls these slaves his people. God doesn't say, let your slaves go, because that would be acknowledging that the Hebrew slaves belong to the Egyptians. They don't. They belong to Yahweh. And Pharaoh has been illegally holding God's people. In essence, this line, let my people go, it's a declaration that Pharaoh stands at the brink of war. Given God's power over the Nile, Pharaoh should not think that going to war with God is advisable. There's a sense where all disobedience to God's commands are a declaration of war against God. Consider Paul's words to the Corinthian Christians. He's he's warning them not to participate in eating food offered up to idols in pagan temples. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 22 says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Yeah, if you went to conflict with God, can you imagine that you would win against the all-powerful God? In essence, That's what we say when we sin. We're going to war against God. And in essence, that's what Moses is saying to Pharaoh. These are God's people. He's calling his people to serve him. And the word serve is a word that a slave would have understood. They shall not serve you, Pharaoh. They belong to God. And then the warning. The war against God will be fought in an arena. You don't know how to fight. This country is going to be plagued with frogs. The Nile which has seen a fair amount of frogs, would now swarm with frogs. That is to say, it would be the most extraordinary swarming of frogs that Pharaoh has ever seen. Now, some modern-day critical scholars argue this must have simply been a natural phenomenon. That is, once they say the Nile is filled with silt that looked like blood, 
and choked the fish, the frogs fled the Nile, and it moved on to the land. But our text says the Nile itself saw an abundance of frogs. Then the frogs would go beyond the Nile into houses, bedrooms, beds, in a kitchen, you have to imagine, everywhere. You know, to say that it's undesirable, you know, that's to say the least we can say. To say this would disgust the entire land, I mean, you'd open a drawer, you'd open an oven, you'd try to crawl into bed, you'd try to sit on a couch. The frogs would literally fill the house, it would take over everywhere. Egypt was suddenly a frightful repugnance. It would have been sickening, revolting. The frogs are slimy, they're unsanitary. You didn't want to touch them. No doubt people tried to remove them only to find more. Their croaking, I would think, would have kept you up at night. You thought of landing on your face, that would have been there. Even the cattle would find frogs in their feeding troughs. Well, that was the warning Moses and Aaron delivered to Pharaoh. The text doesn't tell us how Pharaoh responded or whether Pharaoh responded at all. Indeed, all the text tells us is what Moses and Aaron were to say to Pharaoh. We assume they delivered the message exactly as they were told. So we come now to verses 5 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, and the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. We see here that the frogs came up out of the Nile, and again, we're not to understand that there were no frogs left in the Nile. But it's as if the frogs came like a mighty swarm from the Nile and it filled the entire land as well as canals and pools. Egypt was covered. You have to imagine walking along a road. Frogs have covered the road. You look out into the field, frogs are hopping everywhere. And then as we already saw in the first plague, the the plague of blood in the Nile, the magicians in a more limited fashion could replicate that. Again, we're left to think, Well, I mean, why can't you guys make the frogs go away? But unlike the last time, Pharaoh is not said to harden his heart. And you have to wonder. I mean, seeing all the magicians make frogs appear as well, he merely shrugs his shoulders at what they're able to do. We don't need more frogs. We need a lot fewer of them. This is not helping at all. Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. Once you sign up, All the newest from Dr. John and Phil will be one click away. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail. We've been talking about almost repentance, and at this point in the story, we should remember that the plague of frogs did not threaten anyone's life. The blood in the Nile, that was an inconvenience, and this is a disgusting interruption into life. 
And it wouldn't have taken Pharaoh a great deal of thought to realize that this plague was a bit more formidable than the last one. And so he realizes rather than simply hardening his heart, he's got to do something. And amazingly, Pharaoh realizes that what he needs to do now is find a way to reconcile with a God who's more powerful than he is. And when we see what happens next, some might think that Pharaoh is truly, a bit very close to what we might call a conversion experience. So let's read the text, Exodus 8, 8 to 11. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. This now is the first time in our account that we see Pharaoh taking the initiative to call Moses and Aaron to come to him. Up till now, all the initiative has been on the other side. You know, in the ancient world, it was the person of lesser status that seeks an audience with a person of a greater status. The only other possibility was to be summoned, which of course had great consequences. This isn't a summons. This is a humble appeal. And for a moment, it's going to appear to us that Pharaoh's heart has been softened. He bids them to come. He makes a request, plead with Yahweh. And here he means on his behalf. I mean, Pharaoh knows he has no possibility of entering Yahweh's presence himself. But he does know that Yahweh's prophet is in his country. Would that prophet go before his God and make a request to take the frogs away? Pharaoh knows the magicians don't even have a chance of making that happen. And then Pharaoh makes a commitment, a pledge. If God has mercy on me, then I will do what he calls me to do. I'm going to let the people go. They can worship their God. They can offer sacrifices to him. You've won, Moses. God is one I relinquish. Now, we who are reading this account do know that God will demand a great deal more. They're to be released for an unspecified period of time. They're going to journey to Mount Sinai. Then they're going to learn how to worship, not for a long weekend, but for two years. And then they aren't going to come back to Egypt at all. But to be fair to Pharaoh, he doesn't know that. You know, from a straight-up reading of this text, it seems to indicate that Pharaoh, after an initial warning, you know, with the plague of the Nile, and then second, a more dramatic display of the frogs, Pharaoh's had enough. He's willing now to admit that God is God. And I fear that sometimes modern Christians are far too quick to count someone as a convert. They say they believe in Jesus. They say they want to be a Christian. They say they want to join the church. You know, the idea of watching their lives and their doctrines closely, that is often bypassed in today's world. You know, what's missing is watch care, soul care, care to ascertain the state of someone's soul. And there are numerous examples in the Bible of false conversions. I mean, you might think of Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8.13. It says, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, continued with Philip. And so for many of us, you know, that just settles it. You know, Simon believes that Jesus is the son of God. Simon is baptized. Simon joins into the church and he is being taught by Philip. And yet later, when Simon sees what Peter and John are able to do, he offers them money to get the same power that they have. His worldview, spiritual power, is available, and you can buy it. And Peter tells Simon his money can perish with him because he thought he could obtain the gift of God with money. 
And history tells us that Simon eventually became a, a false teacher, confused many people. And all this from a man who initially believed and was baptized. I would put Simon into the category of almost repentant. And because it was an almost, he became a great enemy of the gospel. It would have been better for Simon had he never heard the gospel rather than to be an almost, you see. Now I say those things with the hope of speaking to anyone listening to me who's almost repentant. Yeah, there is a cost of letting go of all your rebellion against God. I mean, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to pick up the cross. You've, you've got to follow Jesus. That's the cost. The reward is staggering. Listen to me. In comparison to the reward, the cost is a small thing. But should you be an almost, well, then the cost is greater than you can bear. Let's go back to the account of Pharaoh. He will obey, he says, even though, you know, it looks like weakness in the land. He's going to submit to the demand of the Hebrew slave God. He's going to let them go and worship their God, only take the frogs away. You know, at this moment, Moses does something that's, I think, brilliant. He tells Pharaoh that it's up to him to name the time when the frogs disappear. And he does this so that there would never be any doubt. Now, in case you're wondering why Pharaoh doesn't say do it right now, I mean, the Hebrew seems to indicate that Moses says, you tell me on which day. And since this day was well advanced, Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And Moses said, then take note. Tomorrow, the only frogs you're going to see are the ones that are left in the Nile, the ones that have always been there. Tomorrow, just as you've asked. That will be a sign that this was of God. It's not a coincidence or a freak act of nature. So now to Exodus 8, 12 to 14. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Oh, yeah, I guess so. And we need to stop here and notice Moses not only as a prophet, but Moses is a man of prayer. He's told Pharaoh to name the day when the frogs cease. See, up to now, God has not revealed this to Moses, and now Moses has business with God. The Bible says that Moses cried out to the Lord, and this is the first time when we encounter that phrase in the Bible. But it'll come up again in numerous occasions if you read through your Bible. Judges 3 verse 9, after the rebellion against God, the people cried out to the Lord, and he raised up a deliverer who saved them from their enemies. Look, the book of Judges records a cyclical pattern that had developed in Israel. It's a pattern of sin, then it's a pattern of being oppressed by their enemies, and then follows their repentance, which is characterized by crying out to the Lord. And that phrase seems to mean that the matter is desperate. See, we cry out when there's no hope outside of the hope that God can give. 1 Samuel 7 verse 8, the people say to Samuel the prophet, do not cease to cry out to the Lord that we may be saved from the Philistines. Indeed, if I were to characterize what's meant by crying out to the Lord, I'd simply quote Psalm 142, verse 1. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. So crying out, that's to plead for mercy. Moses cries out after his meeting with Pharaoh. He knows that if God doesn't remove the frogs on the next day, Moses will become a discredited prophet Israel will have no chance of being rescued from slavery and being delivered to the promised land. Moses understands at this moment how very much is at stake. It's a desperate time. 
Now we come to Exodus 12, verse 13. It's a wonderful verse for anyone who's ever cried out to God. It simply says, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Now we have that in the teaching of Jesus. Remember Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. See, prayer in conformity with the will of God and in humble obedience and faith. That's powerful. It's effective. We think of Elijah standing before the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. He's crying out to God and God answers in fire. And that's what happens in Egypt. Morning breaks. The frogs, except for those in the Nile, they die in mass. If the land stank a week ago from the fish, this is worse. Rotting frog corpses in great heaps under the hot Egyptian sun. It's not a pretty sight. Leaves no one without a doubt. How we might say all ends well. No, no, it doesn't. Let's look at our last verse, Exodus 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. When did Pharaoh harden his heart to God? Answer, when he saw that there was respite, when the trouble was over, when the pressure was off, when the danger had passed, when the suffering had ceased, when things returned to normal, Pharaoh returned to normal. He was at the beginning a rebel against God, and he's won again at the end. Some people call this foxhole conversion. You know, one is in a war, the enemy surrounds your foxhole, you cry out to God for mercy, and when the trouble is gone, so is your commitment to God. True repentance is repentance that takes place because the heart is changed. One is now willing to admit that God is God and that one will now bend the knee and obey him and seek God with a whole heart. Anything less than that is an almost, and an almost is always a tragedy. Thanks so much, John. No, you said to us that almost converted is worse than never coming close at all. Why is that? And and is that supported in the Bible? Yeah, I do think it is. Um, um, you do have, uh, especially Hebrews 6 and 10, and uh, I would read those passages as the individual who's tasted of the good things of the age to come. I mean, they've, they've, they've been around believers. They've, they've heard the gospel. At times, they've even reveled in it but their souls have never been attached by faith. And that's such a tragedy. I mean, the person who has never heard will not be judged as severely as the person who's heard and been around it, seen its benefits, and then has turned away. That's, that's the worst thing that can happen to anyone. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us next week as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching, you can trust. This Thanksgiving, we give thanks for every listener and all you do to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your prayers, gifts, and encouragement mean so much and are truly essential in making every Bible teaching broadcast and resource possible. We're also grateful for words of encouragement, words like those shared by Julie. Throughout the years, your daily radio program has been such a blessing in our home. I want to thank you for your faithfulness. The ministry of Back to the Bible Canada happens because we all join together with a common heart to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being a part of the Back to the Bible Canada ministry family. For more information, 
or to send a note to let us know how Back to the Bible Canada has impacted your journey, visit backtothebible.ca slash impact and click send your testimonial or call us at 1-800-663-2425.